Good morning, church. Well, this today is the fourth Sunday of the month, and every fourth Sunday of the month, we try to concentrate on an apologetic topic. I know we are preaching to the converted, but uh, it's always good to strengthen our own belief and know why we believe. And so today, I want to carry on uh, what I did about two months ago on the apologetic topic on why I believe in Jesus. Uh, today, I want to cover the p- second part of it. Why I believe in Jesus, uh, two months ago, I covered from the evidential anger. And that is to uh, look at some evidence that suggests that our faith is not a, a blind leap of faith. Our faith is actually, when you really look at it, it's quite a reasonable faith. It's not a blind leap of faith. And I approach it from the evidential anger by looking at the Scripture and say, well, look at these five facts. It's a fulfilled prophecy. There are 300 over prophecies, and it was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And then we look at Jesus' amazing claims, uh, claims that you can conclude that He's either absolutely crazy or what He said is really uh, what it is. And then we look at His supernatural powers that is able to perform all sorts of miracles and even come as a, a true virgin birth and depart resurrected resurrection. And then we look at the empty tomb. And lastly, we look at the evidential side of this belief system that actually transformed lives. And today, I want to uh, use the time that I have to look at a question again and say why I believe in Jesus, but I'm going to come from the existential anger. Uh, existential anger, uh, because I think... I think Likely, in this postmodern world, the, the apologetic approach or method that is very effective is more of from the existential anger, the likes of, of course, the late Ravi Zacharias and many others who, who, who comes from that anger, existential kind of uh, uh, answering those kind of questions, simply because we live in the postmodern world where everything is relative, um, nothing is absolute, and therefore, people's question may be a little bit different. So we, we are coming from the existential kind of uh, anger. And so today, I want to look. At, I want to come from that anger, and and I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter fifteen. Matthew chapter fifteen, and I want to read from verses one to twenty, and then I will go on from there. So Matthew chapter fifteen. Verses 1 to 20. In this passage, Jesus gives us his diagnosis of the world's problem. Uh, Matthew chapter 15. Let me begin from verse 1. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem. And they asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honour their father or mother with it. And thus, 
you nullify the Word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, probably 700 years before. These people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them. But what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. And then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, Explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart and this defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Jesus, of course, in this passage is, is teaching the disciples about external and internal because simply the teachers, the Pharisees were upset the disciples didn't wash their hands uh, before they worship and, and they make a fuss out of it and Jesus used a, a way of approach to confront them. Say, how about you yourself? How about the very simple thing about honouring your parents? How about, how about this law in the Ten Commandments that say, honour your parents? And in, in that particular saying is what uh, in, in Hebrew they call koban, where, where it is a sacrifice or a vow that you make to God. And so some of these Jewish people, they make a vow to God. And, uh, and, and Jesus is saying, well, they make a vow to God and say that they will uh, give this sum of money to, the, to God. And then sometime down the road, the parents were in need. And then they say, well, because I make a vow to God that I'll give the money to God and therefore I can't support my parents. I can't support my parents. Or, and Jesus is saying, you exalt the tradition far above what is recorded in the Word of God. And then he went on to say that these people concentrate so much on the external that they don't know what is going on in their own heart. And they, they, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And Jesus went on to talk about what is the real issues of humanity's problem. It is what is going on inside of us. And so this morning, what I want to do is very simple. I want to summarise in one sentence of my approach 
And if you switch off now in your mind, at least you get one sentence of the summary of my entire sermon. Uh, why I believe in Jesus from the existential anger is simply because I believe that Jesus' diagnosis of the world problem and his solution to the problem resonates with reality. Jesus' diagnosis of the world problem and his solution to the problem resonates with reality. Intuitively, the more I study God's Word, the more I think about my faith, I believe that Jesus' diagnosis of the problem is absolutely spot on. And not only it is spot on, but the solution that He provides is actually the cure to human's problem. People intuitively just know that there is something fundamentally wrong with the world that we live in. It doesn't, we, we just need to get up every morning, turn on the news or read the newspaper. We know that the world is not right. The problem is, how, how do we analyze what is the source of the problem? And how do we solve this problem? And Jesus' diagnosis of it is spot on and His solution is really what can eliminate the real problem. Listen to this uh, New Yorker taxi driver. This is what he says. He says, we're here to die. Just live and die. I live driving a taxi. I do some fishing. I take my girl out. I pay taxes. I do a little reading. And then I get ready to drop dead. You've got to be strong about it. Life is a big fake. Nobody gives a damn. You are rich or you are poor. You are here, you are gone. You are here... You're like the wind. After you're gone, other people will come. It's too late to make it better. Everyone's fed up. Can't believe in nothing no more. People have no pride. People have no fear. People aren't scared. People only care about one thing and that's money. We are going to destroy ourselves. Nothing we can do about it. The only cure for the world's illness is nuclear war. Wipe everything out and start over again. We become like a cornered animal fighting for survival. Life is nothing. You kind of express it, the frustration and sensing uh, the world seems to be going down a spiral, kind of uncontrolled manner, that nothing is, is, is holding it in a sense. Uh, many years ago, UN Secretary uh, Yu Tan, he said this, he said, what element is lacking? Remember, he's a Secretary General of UN. He said, what element is lacking so that with all our skill and all our knowledge, we still find ourselves in the dark valley of discord and enmity? What is it that inhibits us from going forward together to enjoy the fruits of human endeavor and to reap the harvest of human experience? Why is it that for all our professed ideals, our hopes, our skills, our knowledge, peace on earth is still a distant objective seen only dimly through the storms and turmoils of our present difficulties. You know, here are the world's greatest leaders facing the dilemma of modern life. And all they can say is, what is wrong? What is the unknown element behind this? We cannot understand this. We do not know what is going on. We cannot grasp this thing. What is it that is missing? Why is it that we cannot go together? And that is where Jesus' diagnosis, I think Jesus spot on. I mean, of course, we can, we can uh, uh, 
I mean, wrong diagnosis often lead to wrong treatment, isn't it? So the, the problem is we know the problem, but what is the source of the problem? And I think Jesus' diagnosis of the problem is spot on. His, his diagnosis of this was spot on. He gives the most accurate diagnosis of the condition of the world. And that is you and my heart. He said, that is the real problem. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Jesus pinpoint down the source of the world problem. And then He's going to provide the right solution so that we can actually move forward. So if you want a, a very simple outline uh, of this sermon, problem, two points, problem, number one, problem is I. I'm the problem. Solution, Jesus Christ. And I think this existential uh, question of why I believe in Jesus to me, is very attractive, very uh, powerful, because Jesus' diagnosis of the problem is correct, and his solution is even better. My brother recently sent me a, a photo, you know, all this uh, photo with some words, and uh, the question said, what is the hardest thing to break? And then he went on to say, surprisingly, the answer is habit. H-A-B-I-T. Why? Because if you break the hedge, you still have a bit, A-B-I-T. If you break the A, you still have the bit, B-I-T. If you break the B, you still have it. And if you remove or break the T, there is still the I. And that I is the root cause of all problems. And Jesus' diagnosis is that the heart of the problem is human's heart. Albert Einstein, who won the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1921, and whose theory of relativity has revolutionized man's thinking about the nature of time and space, and he made this command, command on the threat of nuclear warfare. He said, it is not a physical problem but an ethical one. What terrifies us is not the explosive force of the atomic bomb, but the power of the wickedness of the human heart, its explosive power for evil. Or even Martin Luther came to see this and it caused him to say, I am more afraid of my own heart than of the Pope and all his cardinals. And Jesus Many years ago, even before Jesus, in the time of Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, Jeremiah the prophet said, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, Above all else, God what? God your heart. Why? For it flows the springs of life. You see, guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And that is what Jesus in Matthew 15 was saying this, it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you corrupt or dirty, but it is what comes out 
from your heart. I remember when I was in Pakistan, uh, we were having a chat with a Muslim, and the Muslim was saying, how can you eat, eat pork? You know, pork is such a, a, a dirty animal where you eat, you don't you feel that you are dirty, you're defiled, and then you sing praises, worship songs. Say, we can't do that. And I remember we went to this verse in Matthew 15 that talks about what goes in. It's not what goes in that defiles you, but what comes out of your heart. And Jesus precisely said the heart of the problem is the problem of the human heart. Of course, uh, and that is a simple word that Jesus defined it, and that is a sin. And unfortunately, we Christians, sometimes we define sin in a very narrow way. And, a very, and therefore, our evangelistic effort sometimes uh, is just only confronting people with their own sin and all that. Sin is not just moralistic about something you do wrong, you have straight thoughts and all that. Well, it is, but it is not uh, big enough to cover what uh, biblical definition is. It is not just moralistic, but it is actually a theological reality. So the Bible is not so much concerned about the individual sin on the tree of life, uh, but it concentrates much more on the root problems of alienation from God. It concerns with our state before God and our, our underlying condition. And just as an illness has visible symptoms through the state of, state of sin produces visible act of sins. So it is not this external sin that we so often like to concentrate on, but the Bible actually concentrates on the root problem, the root problem. And this kind of act is actually flow out from the root problems. In, in other words, sin causes sin. The fundamental alienation from God, depart from God, that sin leads to external sin. And just as any doctor knows it is pointless to treat symptoms, if he neglects the root cause of an illness, so our Christian proclamation declares the need to deal with our state of sin rather than merely with individual sinful action. Not just wrong action, but wrong relationship with God. And in the Bible, there are many, many forms of uh, words that use to define sin in the sense Hamartia, H-A-M-A-R-T-I-A, is the image of archery, missing the mark. You know, like you shoot, you aim the bull eyes, and then poof, you missed it. And so sin is missing the mark to err. Or there's another word they use, parabasis. There's a line there, and when you cross the line or you go beyond transgressing the tradition of the elders, as what uh, uh, Matthew 15 talks about, is the word they use, breaking the command of God. And then there's another word they use, akrasia, uh, A-K-R-A-S-I-A. It is uh, what Romans 7 talks about, the inability to control ourselves, the state of mind in which someone acts against their better judgment through weakness of will. And there's this powerless, our flesh are just so powerful to lead us down a particular pathway. And then there's another word called anomia, called lawlessness, raising our fists against God. And if you read at the creation account in the Genesis, uh, after uh, Adam's sin, sin disrupts our relationships with God. Because what was the first thing Adam and Eve did after they ate the forbidden fruit? They tried to hide from God. It disrupts our relationship with God. It 
sin also alienates us from each other. They become separated because they suddenly recognize they were naked. And then evasion, blaming, finger-pointing, superiority, bitterness and pride, all the elements of social breakdown are there in the early chapters of Genesis. So sin disrupts our relationship with God. Sin alienates us from each other. And then also sin, the fall itself, affects all of nature. And because Adam and Eve were given dominance over the rest of the creation, their rebellion injected disorder into all of creations. So let me just give you very quickly uh, a few models to understand sin because this is what Jesus' diagnosis of his, the problem is the human heart. Sin is an illness. What I mean by illness is that uh, R.C. Pro, the reform scholar who died a couple of years ago, great, great uh, reform scholar, he says that we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. A dog doesn't become a dog because it barks. A dog barks because it's a dog. So we are sinners not because we sin. We are considered sinners not because we do wrong things. We sin because we are sinners. We are not sinners because we sin, but the sin because we are sinners. Sin and the devastating consequences came from Adam's disobedience to God. When we are born into this world, sin already inherited in us. That is what Scripture says. So sin is not social conditioning or education or, or you know, all that kind of thing. Sin is already inbuilt in us when we are born into this world. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says, When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone for everyone sinned. Romans 5, verse 12. Psalms 51, David's prayer after he committed murder and adultery. He says, Surely I was sinful at birth. In verse 5 of chapter 51. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So sin in that sense is an illness. It is inherited in us. It's not society conditioning and all that. It's already inbuilt in us. Every parent will know that particularly if you have children. No one teach children how to lie or whatever. They just know. They just know. It is inherited in them. Number two, sin is moral guilt. Uh, there's no doubt about it. He's righteous and we fall short of that righteousness and salvation includes liquidated the moral guilt. And thirdly, sin is an enslaving force that I mentioned already. It's like a muddy swamp. Once we are trapped, we are unable to get out of it. And we need someone to reach out and lift us out of the swamp. That is in Romans chapter 7. This constant conflict within, within us. The things that I want to do, I'm not doing. The things that I don't want to do, I kept doing it. There's this, there's this power that is enslaving us to go down a pathway that we don't want to do. And the things that I want to do, I'm just not able to do that. It's a, it's a strong enslaving force. And then sin is also, number four, last one, is sin is existential alienation. 
existential alienation. And that is where the existentialist uh, philosophy, philosopher like uh, Martin Hilgiger and Paul, John, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and, and all these people, they, they, develop, they develop these two great ways to live, they say. Inauthentic and authentic existence. There are two ways. The concept of authentic and inauthentic existence. An inauthentic existence is failing to achieve our fullest potential. And then the authentic existence is fulfilling existence. Full potential is realized. And they have this contrast that lies, lives in the darkness or live in the light, death or in life, sin or in grace, loss or being found. And of course, New Testament, Jesus also gave us the two ways to live. One foolish choose and gripped by the other through the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a free gift. And so those are models that sin is defined in the sense of moral guilt about illness, is inbuilt in us, it's an enslaving force, it's an existential alienation because we stray away from God. And then sin begins to manifest itself in many, many ways. It manifests itself in alienation, emptiness. There's a sense of emptiness in us. That they don't seem to, to, to contain or satisfy. There's this strange emptiness, even through wealth and money and fame and all that. Uh, Kurt Cobain was a lead singer of Nirvana. He, you know, he wrote a song called Dumb. But you can, I mean, he's one of the greatest musicians. He said, my heart is broke, but I have some glue. And help me to inhale and man it with you. We'll float around and hang out on clouds. And then we'll come down and have a hangover. Uh, have a hangover. Skin the sin fall asleep, wish away, the soul is cheap, lesson learned, wish me luck, soothe the burn, wake me up, I'm not like them, but I can pretend, the sun is gone, but I have a light, the day is gone, but I'm having fun, I think I'm a dumb, and then he wrote another song called, I hate myself and I want to die, can you believe that? I hate myself and I want to die, and the word say, if you die, you're completely happy, he once said, and your soul somewhere lives on. I'm not afraid of dying. Total peace after death. Becoming someone else is the best hope I've got. You see the hatred, the emptiness, despite of all the, the adoration of fans and, and wealth and fame. And therefore to be famous in some sense is to be condemned to a unique variety of loneliness. To be famous is to be condemned to a unique variety of loneliness within them. Or Ravi Zacharias, in one of the books, he says, he said, the loneliest moment in life is when you have just experienced what you thought would deliver the ultimate and he has let you down. That is the loneliest moment of your life. And so, so sin manifests itself in this kind of way, this kind of emptiness, these existential issues of, of emptiness, the loneliness, and then there's a lack of 
or absence of meaning, the sense of meaninglessness in this postmodern culture that we live in. Uh, Victor Franco would say, clinics are crowded with people suffering from a new kind of neurosis, a sense of total and ultimate meaninglessness of life. Of course, we have these short-term goals of uh, sending our children to school, raising our children, do this, do that, uh, but they don't have an ultimate arch meaning in a sense. So there's this sense of absence of meaning. This, this, it manifests itself in this kind of way. The famous Mark Twain, uh, shortly before his death, uh, he wrote this. He said, A myriad of men are born. They labor, they sweat, and they struggle. They squabble, and they scold, and they fight. They scramble for little mean advantages over each other, and then age creeps upon them. Infirmities follow. Those they love are taken from them, and the joy of life is turned to aching grief. It comes at last, the only unpoisoned gift earth ever had for them, and they vanish from a world where they were of no consequence, a world which will lament them for a day and forget them forever. How depressing is that? There's this sense of meaninglessness, this emptiness that sin brought forth upon uh, humanity, alienating from God. And there's this, this quest, and then we find ourselves going after other things and materialist materials and the quest for other sorts of fulfillment and hoping that it will somehow fill that void because sin has generated, because we are alienated from our Creator. And we fill ourselves with material things in hope that it will propel us and give us some meaning. Central pleasure hold up promises that lack staying power. Central pleasures offer to open our eyes, but in reality they blind us. And sensual pleasures disillusion us, making us cover up artists that we have to put on the front. And all this comes from this whole issues of issues of the heart. And therefore, Jesus, I think his diagnosis of our, the source of human problem is spot on. He said the heart of the problem is human heart. You see, my friend, if you diagnose the problem correctly, then your solution will bring about the real fulfillment. But if you diagnose it incorrectly, which I think... Many people think, oh, if you just do this, everything will be okay. You give people the world's problems because they lack of education. Give everybody an education, they will be uh, moving down the correct pathway. All kinds of solutions have been proposed. Or be, uh, the world problems because we don't share resources. You know, we don't, one, one part of the world is too poor, no food. The other side is too much and they chuck away food. So if only we can share resources, the world will be okay. Make poverty history or this and that, which is an outflow of our faith, not itself the, 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 the solve the problem. We can do this social work. Yes, we have to do. But yet again, the heart of our 
the issue that Jesus mentioned is the problem of the heart. And that's why, Christian, we always have this message. We do mission work and all that. For what purpose? Because we believe that we can bring this solution, this beautiful message to people. Not just only social work, as important as it is, but the gospel preaching is just as important. Or the best is Charles Spurgeon, who said, if you give a gospel tract to someone, why don't you wrap it with a sandwich? Uh, we don't have to dichotomize the two, but it's only to say that social work doesn't solve the real thing if you stop there. It may be a platform to move towards something that Jesus wants us to do, and that is to treat the human heart, and that is the beautiful gospel message. And so, so Jesus diagnosed that the problem is Christ. So the problem is I, and the solution is Jesus. And that is why I believe in Jesus as I continue down this pathway, exploring my belief, my faith, and I believe that this message that we have is the message that we can transform the world. Titus chapter 3, uh, verse 5, says, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And so the problem is I and the solution is Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you come to me. I give you eternal life. I can change your heart that is within you. And that is why if you read John 3, uh, John chapter 3, Jesus said that to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you need to be born again because you need a new heart. You need me to come into your life and power you with the Holy Spirit. Come and repent of your sin. Reconcile back with me. Move away from your alienation now to come back to God. And I will give you the Holy Spirit, empower you, and then you will live out the beautiful life that you call us that Jesus called us to live. Why I believe in Jesus? Because I believe on the problem. And Jesus gives the beautiful solution of forgiveness, welcoming us back again. Ernest Hemingway was an American uh, writer many years ago. He once wrote a short story uh, called The Capital of the World. And in it, he told the story of a father and his teenage son who were estranged from one another. And the son's name was Paco. He had wronged his father, and as a result, in his shame, he had run away from home. And in the story, the father searched all over Spain for Paco. But still he could not find a boy. And finally, in the city of Madrid, in a last desperate attempt to find his son, the father placed an advertisement in the daily newspaper. And the advertisement simply read with capital bold words, Paco, Meet me at the Hotel Montana. Noon, Tuesday. All is forgiven. Papa. Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana. Noon, Tuesday. 
all is forgiven, Papa. The father in Hemingway's story prayed that the boy would see the advertisement and then maybe, just maybe, uh, he would come to Hotel Montana. And on Tuesday at noon, the father arrived at the hotel. When he did, he could not believe his eyes. An entire squadron, squadron of police officers had been called out in an attempt to keep order among 800 young boys. It turned out that each one of them was named Paco. And each one of them had come to meet his respective father and find forgiveness in front of the Hotel Montana. 800 boys named Paco had read the advertisement in the newspaper and had hoped it was for them. 800 Pacos had come to receive the forgiveness they so desperately desired. And of course, these beautiful stories illustrate the great truth that Jesus was actually driving home in his most famous parable of the prodigal son. Just as there are many, many Pacos in Hemingway's story, so there are innumerable prodigals in the world. And in truth, all of us are prodigals. All of us have run away from God. All of us, as the scripture said, are like sheep, have gone astray. And fortunately, God has not given up and He will come us back. And so I think this beautiful gospel message that we have, this existential, real reason of human sinfulness, and intuitively we know the world has problems, intuitively we know we are contributor to the problem, and this beautiful story of Jesus coming to redeem us is the, is the message that we have for the world. And so why I believe in Jesus? Because I believe strongly, in short, this gospel message that we have is the solution to humanity's problem. Jesus diagnosed it as our heart issues and He provides a remedy and a solution out of it through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's why I believe in Jesus. And I hope it can give you hope, it can give you courage in your belief as well. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for this beautiful story, the beautiful gospel that we have. Thank you, Jesus. You are the real solution to humanity's struggle. Sin has alienated us and therefore it manifests itself in many, many, many problems that we experience. And people's sense of meaninglessness, the, 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 the pan pantry is full but the heart is empty. There's this struggling to fill the void in their hearts with many things. This emptiness, this meaninglessness, this alienation, this materialism that people are after is ultimately just a symptoms and they don't know how to go about fulfilling that. And Lord, you... You say, I am the living water. I am the living bread. I can satisfy your deepest hunger. I can satisfy your deepest thirst. When we make peace with you, when we come and return to the Father's fold, and then our lives will take on new meaning. Lord Jesus, in you 
we have a love that can never be fathomed. In you, we have a life that can never die. In Jesus, we can have a righteousness that can never be tarnished. In Jesus, we can have a peace that can never be understood. In Jesus, we can have a rest that can never be disturbed. In Jesus, we can have a joy that can never be diminished. doesn't matter what's happening. doesn't matter what happened to the world. We can have a joy that can never be diminished. We can have a hope that can never be disappointed. We can have a glory that can never be clouded. We can have a light that can never be darkened. We can have a beauty that can never be marred. Oh Lord, we can have a wisdom that can never be baffled. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the gift of life. Help us to not just believe in you, but believe in you with great convictions. Because existentially is right. You diagnose the correct problem of this world and you provide this beautiful solution to redeem humanity. Thank you, Lord. May each one of us here today as we contemplate on your words and look at Matthew 15 and to know that our heart is what comes out of it. And thank you that you gave us a new heart in Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen. May the Christ who walks on wounded feet walk with you on the road. May the Christ who serves with wounded hands stretch out your hands to serve. May the Christ who loves with a wounded heart open your hearts to love. May you see the face of Christ in everyone you meet and may everyone you meet see the face of Christ in you now and forevermore. Amen.